Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Solar geoengineering has the potential to counteract rising global temperatures and perhaps even reduce the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So why are scientists so cautious in talking about it? Hello and welcome to Babbage, The Economist's weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And also coming up on today's show... In a warming world, a cool idea that could revolutionize air conditioning. Instead of a gas, they use a metal. If it's compressed, it releases heat. And when relaxed, it absorbs it. So squeeze it, relax it, squeeze it, relax it. And you have the basis of a heat pump. And our obituaries editor remembers Steven Weinberg, a theoretical physicist who united two of the known forces of the universe. He began to think about the stars and the planets and became fascinated with the thought that there was a mathematical theory that could be applied to the whole universe. Algeria's Kabyle region is known for its lush mountains and forests but scorching summer temperatures have reduced the trees to kindling. Severe storms across Germany have unleashed some of the worst floodings in decades. July 2021 was the hottest month ever recorded on Earth, according to data released by the United States. If the extreme weather events of the past few months left any room for doubt, the most recent scientific findings are painfully clear. Last week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change delivered its starkest warning yet on global warming, as Rachel Dobbs, The Economist's climate correspondent, told The Economist's daily show, The Intelligence. This report finds that even if countries were to drastically reduce their greenhouse gas emissions now, and none of them are currently showing a consistent downward trend of any sort, the world would likely breach 1.5 degrees Celsius of temperature rise above pre-industrial levels within the next 20 years. The IPCC was comprehensive in its warnings that the world is falling behind on targets to cut greenhouse gas emissions, targets which, even if met, may still not be enough to prevent catastrophic change to the planet. But there was one notable absence from the part of the report on which governments have to officially sign off. Solar geoengineering is a manipulation of the Earth's atmosphere or surface in some way, such as to reflect away rather more of the sunlight that hits the Earth than would otherwise be reflected. Oliver Morton is a senior editor at The Economist and leads the paper's climate coverage. He also wrote a book on geoengineering called The Planet Remade. 
The IPCC, when it looks at scenarios for counteracting climate change, it doesn't include solar geoengineering in those scenarios. However, in various contexts, it provides some overviews of what geoengineering might be able to achieve and what some of the drawbacks of it might be. What kind of specific ideas have been proposed? Well, I think the two forms of solar geoengineering that are most discussed are putting aerosols, probably sulfate, into the stratosphere. There's normally a very thin layer of particles in the stratosphere anyway, which is reflecting away a little bit of sunlight. That layer thickens a great deal after large volcanic eruptions. The idea would be to thicken it on a more permanent basis by injecting particles into the stratosphere or gases that are precursors to particles into the stratosphere. Another possibility would be to brighten the big flat decks of marine cloud that sit over some parts of the world's oceans on a fairly regular basis. And thus, by making those clouds brighter, you would make them reflect more sunlight. And then there are some more specific ideas, for instance, lightening the roofs of cities or lightening some parts of the Earth's surface. But you've got to remember that in order to have a global effect, you either have to lighten all the world a little bit, or you have to lighten small pieces of the world a great deal. There's an averaging out effect. There's also some more atypical and perhaps batty ideas. Yeah, one of them, for instance, has been putting mirrors up in space. In principle, if you put a large reflective shield or a set of small reflective shields at what's called the L1 point, which is between the Earth and the sun, you could cut down the amount of sunshine that comes directly to the Earth. Have any of the ideas that have been mooted been tested? Are there any geoengineering projects going on already? Not in any real sense. No one has yet made a field test of anything that would brighten marine clouds to any reasonable extent whatsoever. And certainly no one has attempted to alter the stratosphere in a way that would reflect away sunlight. No, there's nothing of that practical nature has been attempted. Why is geoengineering research so controversial? Geoengineering research is controversial for a number of reasons. There's a widespread and quite plausible critique that the possibility of solar geoengineering of this form would lead people to invest less and treat with less urgency the question of reducing emissions. Now, all the researchers I know who look into these possibilities feel that solar geoengineering should always be used only as a supplement to the real business of carbon dioxide emissions reduction. But there is a widespread view that a world in which there was serious movement towards solar geoengineering might be a world in which you would see less carbon dioxide emissions reduction. Another worry is that you can solar geoengineer in different ways and with different intensities. I mean, if you think about it in terms of putting aerosols into the atmosphere, you can imagine different distributions and different amounts of aerosol. And it might be that some of those ways of doing solar geoengineering had effects that one country would like more, and some of those ways had effects that other countries would like more. So the level and structure of a solar geoengineering program might be a legitimate cause for international conflict. What about the fear of unintended consequences? 
The biggest issue that we know of with studies of solar geoengineering is that if you even out a temperature change, you will not even out a precipitation change. So there are various places where it might become salient that geoengineering tends to dry places out somewhat. That's not an absolute problem. It also reduces the amount of water lost from the surface because of evaporation. But these things become complex and could go either way. You'd really worry about doing a geoengineering program before you've done a pretty thorough sort of audit for that. There's a way in which people think that if you were to do a solar geoengineering program, you'd just decide to do it and you'd do it and uh, and then you'd look like a fool when it all went wrong. And I suppose there's a certain amount of inductive evidence from history to suggest that might be the case. But that's not the only way to do a thing like that. It's interesting that some studies I've seen have suggested that the amount of effort you'd have to put into monitoring the solar geoengineering, if you did it in the stratosphere, would be far greater than the amount of effort you'd have to put into actually putting the stuff up there. So where does the IPCC stand on solar geoengineering research? And do other important climate science bodies share these concerns? The IPCC, I believe, endorses research. And it's important to remember we've so far only seen the first tranche of the IPCC's most recent, its sixth assessment report. There's a second and a third tranche coming out next year, which will probably deal with the questions of what to do about solar geoengineering in somewhat more depth. The American National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine recently made a report where they suggested that there should be a larger effort to research these issues in America. And they also said, and I think a lot of people would see this as very much a a very useful addendum, and elsewhere, because one of the things about the difficult geopolitics of even talking about solar geoengineering is that it's disturbing to think of it becoming a technology in which one particular power was expert and no one else really knew what was going on. You must also remember that compared to what a huge idea it is, the actual absolute amount of research that's been done on this issue is really quite small. And what's your view? How seriously should geoengineering be taken? Is it worth pursuing? I certainly don't think it's a sort of like easy solution. I do think it deserves to be looked at, both for the fact that it does seem to offer the potential for genuinely reducing the harm done by climate change. And it's also worth looking at because some person somewhere might try and do it anyway, whether or not it's a good idea. And at that stage, it would be useful to have something to say about it. All that said, I do take seriously the idea that a world which accepts the possibility of solar geoengineering will make less effort to reduce carbon emissions. And possibly the worst of all possible worlds is the one in which we kind of endorse the idea that sometime there'll be solar geoengineering, but don't do anything to make it more possible, thereby pushing all the risk of both climate change and solar geoengineering off onto the future generations. That would seem to me to be uh, an intolerable position of bad faith. Ali, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Ken. Always nice talking to you. In a warming world, keeping yourself cool is also important. In fact, it can be vital, and demand for air conditioning is surging. But that perfectly climate-controlled office or home comes at a cost. 
Air conditioners use gases called refrigerants to absorb the heat and so to cool the air. These gases are mostly hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, which are also used in fridges. They began to be used in the mid-1990s to replace chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, which were infamous for depleting the Earth's ozone layer. Now, HFCs don't do that, but they can trap thousands of times as much heat as carbon dioxide. That means that when they escape, as they often do, they are much more potent causes of global warming. Researchers have long been trying to come up with a better cooling system, but they've not come close to finding a direct replacement. Now, a small Irish company believes it has come up with an answer. Exigen is based in Dublin, and it's been working secretly on a project for two years in collaboration with a multinational air conditioning company. Paul Markilli is the Economist Innovation Editor. And they now have a working prototype of a new type of air conditioning unit that is not only green, because it doesn't use any of these horrible hydrofluorocarbon gases, but it's also cheaper. That sounds like the best of both worlds. Sounds like magic. How does it work? Well, instead of a gas, they use a metal. um, And in this case, it's a shape memory alloy. Now, these are unusual alloys that have an ability to return to their predetermined shape when heated. There's some other properties as well, and the particular alloy that Exogen is using is a blend of nickel and titanium, which is called nitinol. Like other memory alloys, if it's compressed, it releases heat, and when relaxed, it absorbs it. Now, the firm's version is rather remarkable at doing this. So squeeze it, relax it, squeeze it, relax it, and you have the basis of a heat pump. Okay, so you have a material that when you squeeze it releases heat. How does that work for cooling? Well, a heat pump can pump in several directions. You can take um, something cold, heat it up and pump it out the other way, or you can take something hot, cool it down and pump the heat up. It's a two-way street, really. But for now, because the air conditioning problem is growing and people are very worried about environmentalism, producing this machine as an air conditioning unit is reckoned to be the quickest and fastest way into market. Okay, so what does the prototype look like? The prototype uses small plates of the alloy, and they have about 50 or so of these plates all stacked up on one another to form a core. What happens is a heat transfer medium is then passed through this core while it does its pumping. Now, this can be a benign substance rather than one of these nasty refrigerant gases, and the firm has successfully used air and water. And four stacks are used to make a unit. And Kevin O'Toole, who's Exogen's manager director, he explains that this works a bit like a four-stroke engine. At any given moment, one stack is being compressed, one released, one preheated, and one pre-cooled. And the effect of that is to provide a continual cool circuit to chill down a room and a hot circuit to expel the heat to the outside, pretty much as a conventional air conditioning unit works. Who came up with the idea and why did it take so long? Well, Dr. O'Toole is in fact an expert in memory shape alloys. And his first idea was to use this technology to take low grade waste heat. This is sort of hot water from industrial processes, not hot enough to generate steam. So generally it's chucked away and to use this technology to turn that into electricity. 
he was persuaded by the changing legislation and the pressure to come up with a greener air conditioning system to kind of do it the other way and produce an air conditioning unit. So that's how they got there. And then they've teamed up with a big American company who is really interested in this. And they've been running this prototype uh, to see how it works. And it's working very well. Where else could it be used? Besides sort of cooling down buildings, um, the company is already talking to car makers and aerospace firms because this machine can be lighter and smaller and so it has great benefits. And cars and some aeroplanes are going electric. So it's not just the cabins that uh, car makers are having to think about how do we cool this down there, but you also need cooling for the batteries as well. And you said it's also cheaper than current aircon systems. How does it manage that? besides avoiding nasty gases, which is in itself a costly problem. The kit to do this should be less expensive to buy and some 30 to 40% cheaper to operate. So that's, that's quite a saving there. And it's also lighter and smaller. Now, an important thing with air conditioning units is you need to get them up lift shafts to put into buildings, especially apartment blocks. So it will do that too. With hardly any moving parts, which is what in the jargon is a solid state system, there's not a lot to go wrong. And uh, they reckon that on their tests that the core of this unit could run for 40 years without a problem. When can I buy one? Not yet, of course. <laughs> the development work's still continuing, um, but could only be a few years away. Uh, it depends how things go. But at the moment, it looks good. It looks very promising. And it may not be just air conditioning because they're looking at other ways of using this apart from generating electricity, but also to making refrigerators and heat pumps that could extract warmth from the ground and be used for domestic heating. You know, they're busy folks. (laughs) Tell me about it. So much heat to transfer, so little time. Paul, thank you very much. That's a pleasure, Ken. For lots more climate coverage, visit our Climate Change Hub. That's at economist.com slash climate change. There you can find a cornucopia of information, such as our analysis of the recent IPCC report, and you can explore why Pacific countries face more complex problems than rising sea levels, and even find out how climate change is affecting the taste of wine. To get access to all that and more, be sure to be a subscriber to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. Of course, don't forget to tell them Ken Sencha. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. 
When he was very young, he was given a wooden box that contained a chemistry set. And it was playing with those chemicals that inspired him to think that if those chemicals behaved differently because they were made of atoms, then if you knew about atoms, you'd know how the whole world worked. And this idea of knowing everything and being able to categorize everything began to take shape in his mind. Then there was another occasion when he was a teenager, he went to a public library in New York, taking some books back and found a book on the table called Heat. In the middle of the equations, there was a wonderful, swirly, elegant figure, which was an integral sign. And he was fascinated that with an equation, you could express something as rudimentary, as fundamental as heat. Then last of all, when he became a young professor of physics, he began to think about the stars and the planets and generally raise his eyes upwards and became fascinated with the thought that there was a mathematical theory that could be applied to the whole universe. Gradually, he concluded that there were general laws in nature, there were regularities that boiled down to just a few simple laws that explained everything and how the whole world worked. They were not all known yet, but if they weren't, they would be. It was just a matter of constantly asking questions and searching for these things. He wrote a book in 1977 called The First Three Minutes, in which he went through the immediate aftermath of the Big Bang from a second afterwards to the moment when this hyper-hot cosmic soup cooled down enough to allow the nuclei of the lightest element, atoms, to form. He saw early on that particle physics and cosmology were deeply intertwined and this gave the possibility that you could find out how the Big Bang had happened and how fast the universe was expanding. It was thought at one point to be contracting. Then it was found that it was accelerating and all this was immensely exciting to him. In the end, he developed a standard model of cosmology, which was overwhelmingly dominated by unobservable matter and energy, that is dark matter and dark energy, and just a few percentages, just a tiny percent of observable ordinary matter, the stars, the planets, and ourselves, which he called a small contamination of the whole of the universe. But he wanted desperately to have these particles discovered, and he hoped that the Large Hadron Collider at CERN could manage to detect a particle of dark matter. But he was particularly frustrated that America had been going to build its own super collider, and Congress in 1993 had cancelled it and might have just, just managed to detect some trace of these unobservable things that were completely filling the universe. It gave him great satisfaction to find these unified laws. On the other hand, it didn't give him much comfort because he was absolutely sure that the laws of nature were impersonal and cold. There was no purpose to them, and there was certainly not any God-directed plan in which human beings were starring in some drama. In the first three minutes, he made the remark that the more comprehensible the universe seemed, the more pointless it also seemed. And this caused great media excitement. It was probably the most famous thing he ever said. But in the very next paragraph, he did say that human beings could make a point in the universe. They could give it purpose. 
by living good lives, by loving each other, and by creating great literature and art. And he was an enormous devotee of all these things. He married his college sweetheart, was happily married for years. The only thing that continually angered him was the persistence of religion and the corrosive effect that it had on science, in his opinion. He thought scientists would have made the greatest contribution they could make to civilization if they managed to disrupt religion and drive it away. Although he himself often said that he was more interested in religion than most scientists simply because it did involve having a unified picture of the laws that govern the universe. And he appreciated that even as he really found religion quite intolerable. He did feel, however, quite strongly that there would be no end to man's questioning of how everything worked. The trouble was that even if one day all the laws of nature were found to resolve to one law and one regulator, scientists, indeed ordinary people, would still be asking, why this one law? Why this one regulator? And why in this universe? Why not in another universe? There was simply no end to the chain of whys. And he did feel that it was part of the human condition, which he always thought of as a tragic condition, either farce or tragedy. The human condition simply dictated that human beings never would know how everything worked. They were simply not given the power to find it out. That's Anne Rowe on Steven Weinberg, who died on July 23rd, aged 88. Thank you for listening to Babbage. And while you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producers are Jason Hoskin, Abby Soye Oshindairo, and William Warren. Nico Rofast is the sound engineer. And the program's editors this week are Sandra Schmueli and Amika Shortino-Nolan. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.